Sonia reporting for From the Front Row. Back in November, Ian and I had the opportunity to attend the annual APHA meeting in Philadelphia. During our time there, we talked with many different colleagues across the public health spectrum. One session in particular caught my ear. In the last decade, the opioid crisis has tripled the deaths of houseless individuals in Philadelphia, and many other residents struggle with the crippling effects of addiction and overdose. I sat down with Allison Horenz, the harm reduction coordinator for the Philadelphia Department of Public Health, to discuss the situation further. Today on our program, we'd like to welcome Allison Horenz. Allison obtained her Bachelor of Science from Drexel and her Master of Social Work from the University of Pennsylvania. She currently serves as the harm reduction coordinator at the Philadelphia Department of Public Health. Allison, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So let's start with a bit of a background for yourself. Uh, can you talk about the forces that kind of came together and convinced you to focus on handling the opioid epidemic as part of your career? I always say I never, I never really planned any of this. You know, um, best laid intentions never really worked out this way. I grew up, you know, a person who I would say was definitely impacted by the overdose crisis growing up. You know, I had have had and still have a lot of people in my life who use drugs. And I um, definitely grew up with a commitment to social justice and advocating for the rights for different groups of people. So it kind of just fell into place. I worked for some time as a case manager, working with people coming out of jail who took plea bargains to go to treatment and working with my own family, working through those experiences. You just really, you can't ignore how systems systems fail people just every day, just every day, these systems that are made to help people. And you see that every day when I, in, in my own job, you know, things that should work just don't. And it really sets people up for failure. At the time I, I quit that job. I took a little sabbatical to work on my own substance use issues. And, um, you know, I ended up applying and, and they picked me. I, I still, to this day, don't know why, you know, I'm definitely not what most people would consider to be the most professional city employee in the world, you know, but I think most people realize that in terms of the work I care, it's my life. I, uh, I think I bring a lot of real world experience to the work. I think that's a really important point to hit on is that idea of uh, lived experience. I know that's a big component mm -hmm. in terms of harm reduction coalition philosophies, but then also I think in general for public health, would you say that it definitely helps you connect better with the individuals you're working with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in some ways, right? Like in terms, and unfortunately, I don't do a lot of, you know, direct service at this point, you know, it's all very um, more programmatic. So I, I do, I get very excited when we're doing like focus groups and things like that, because those that is really my community, you know, um, those are the people I'm the most comfortable with. It's the days where I'm sitting in meetings with commissioner level people and uh, people who work all over the city who don't have a, a lot of the same experience and just assume when things are saying they're working, people just assume that things are being done as they say they're being done. And that's just not usually how systems work. You know, there's usually a lot of system breakdown in between that, that people at certain levels just never hear about. So I think it, it does add a lot of benefit to have me in some of those rooms to really troubleshoot a lot of what's actually going on down on the ground level. 
Let's talk about that a little bit more. This is kind of, you talk about the advocacy moments for that. And we know that Philadelphia is really working to manage and reduce the effects of this opioid epidemic. Right now, kind of take us through that day in your life that you're talking about. What are these principles of harm reduction that you're working on? And then how are they carried out in your position? Unfortunately, I, I never have what, what one would consider be a normal day. I wear way too many different hats in this role. So I spend a lot of time in meetings, a lot of times in the community, working with groups who work with people who use drugs, working with city officials and um, lots of different people. But I really, I really try to hold on to those, those key harm reduction principles. I mean, I think the fact that our program even exists kind of acknowledges the main principle, right? Is that we accept that for better or worse, that people use drugs, illicit and illicit drugs, right? And that they do have harmful effects that can be minimized. I think it's an incredibly big step that the city even has any kind of program around this because it enforces them to acknowledge that this is a kind of reality of our world. I think that I the ones I really try to hold on to the most is, you know, this idea that a lot of these movements are really meant to be drug user led. You know, I really remind myself on a daily basis that I am not the expert in the subject. And while I have substance use issues, it was never with heroin, never injected drugs, right? And therefore, I really look to my colleagues in the community to help me come up with the best approaches, check me if I'm doing something that's, you know, not okay, or if my language isn't appropriate. And, you know, that's why I thought it was so great when we started, we do these like monthly focus groups now that we ask, people about all kinds of different topics because, you know, I think unless you're getting that information right from the horse's mouth, anything else that we have is just like hearsay and, you know, not really enough to go on. Because I find that um, people in certain positions, you know, like doctors, you know, um, other kinds of public health people, they, they make a lot of assumptions sometimes about drug use. And a lot of it just comes from the fact that as a society, right, we look at drug use from at the from this frame of being inherently harmful, right? We don't talk about any of the benefits of drug use and we never frame it as being beneficial. And I think that a lot of my colleagues have really set me up in this way to better advocate and to really make sure I'm pushing the envelope and making sure we're talking about all drug use and the continuum of drug use, whether it be problematic or not. Because there's definitely a lot of people out there who do use drugs that most people would consider to be harmful on a regular basis and are relatively safe about it, you know, and who a lot of people in their lives might not even know about it. You know, that's another assumption a lot of people make that it's going to be obvious that people are using these kinds of drugs. And that's not always the case. You know, I always say that Kensington is the most visible part of this overdose crisis. You know, it's really in all these other neighborhoods where people are using indoors in the private residence where they're really dying. It's over 60% of our fatalities are happening in private residences. So you end up trying to figure out how do you reach people who aren't even trying to be reached, who aren't even seeking services. So it's, um, I think a lot of what I try to do is really dispel a lot of these myths that people have about drug use and, and the so-called inherent harms of it. One thing off of that, too, when I first started doing stuff like this, I worked in the syringe services program quite a long time ago. But one of the the tenets that I really enjoyed from there was the idea of you want to meet people where they are in their life. Can you talk more about that and how language plays an important role in it, too? Because you have these situations, too, where you've got 
um, big level uh, individuals like uh, physicians or other uh, entities like that who have sometimes can have a little bit of a difficulty meeting these folks where they are, their techniques or tools that they could use in their practice to kind of dispel those myths for one, but then also to connect better with their patients who they're seeing, who they're trying to help too as well. Right. I think, um, I think it's really hard for some people because they have a hard time not being uncomfortable with the, with the things that people are doing. And, and you can see it, right? You can generally see it like all over people's faces. And it, it does really call for a lot of radical acceptance of the fact that this person is going to do these things, whether you like it or not. And really the best thing you can do for them is ask them what they need from you. We set up services in this way where you have to meet this requirement in order to get them. You have to be sober. You have to be this. You have to be that. And really, it's, it's, not, it's not how people really grow. If you are worrying about where you're going to sleep every night, like what are, what are your real chances of not using drugs if you're staying up all night to not sleep when you're using crack? whatever there's just not a lot of reality (laughs) in like how we provide services to people and so when you meet someone where they're at and you ask them what they need you know it builds trust especially when you actually follow up and pull through right when you actually do that thing for that person whether it's be I mean just getting them socks or just getting them access to hep C treatment or you know just like sometimes it's just like these very basic things and what I always say to people is if, if that person can, like, on a small incremental basis, work on these different goals that they have, you know, more and more, they might be able to visualize a life that's better than without, without drugs, right? That's really what a lot of this is about for people. You have to be able to imagine that your life can be better without this. Because without that, there's really no hope, right? There's any, any kind of treatment that person is going to get it's going to almost really be forced because they don't really they can't really picture it don't really see it probably don't even really want it I really feel like harm reduction it's just it's just really how we should approach lots of things you know um and it's how medical staff should approach all people you know I I I mean I even have these very similar experiences when I go to the doctor you know and um I was actually had a very rare experience recently where I saw a primary care physician who didn't do this but you know typically they're sitting there telling you all the things you shouldn't do and you know you shouldn't be smoking and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that and that that's fine but like have you have you asked me what what I want you know, like, what are my goals for my health? Because typically, that's not always a part of the conversation, you know, it's all very paternalistic, telling people what to do. But that's not actually how change happens. A lot of the time, you know, people really have to, goals really are meant to be self directed, you know, that's really how people achieve them. Like, immediately in my head, I'm thinking about, uh, what is it, the the saying is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, something to that effect, you know, you put in that discussion topic of what is an actual goal you want to meet. And it might be, you know, you're still smoking, but instead of smoking four packs a day, you're smoking one pack a day kind of thing. Exactly. And we, there is very little that we as a society do around prevention. I think there's a big buzzword and people talk about it all the time, but it's really, you know, how, like, how do you actually prevent some of these things? And like, especially when you talk about like drug use in general, 
Um, like people just want to take drugs off the street. Well, my big thing is you can't decrease supply without decreasing demand, right? You have to create a world maybe where people don't want to use drugs all the time. You know, I it's, I think a lot of times people are very confused about how to actually implement some of the things that they want to do. I think they, they try to... It, it, I mean, they really, they try to force people into doing what they want to do and it just doesn't work. And it's, you know, it's generally like pretty coercive, but that's, again, these are just my opinions. <laughs> it's good. No, it's good to go into that mm-hmm. aspect of prevention. Cause I know that a lot of emphasis now is kind of focused on not much so prevention, but more so what happens after the fact. So kind of in that vein of things, I know that the Department of Public Health, uh, on your side of things, they announced uh, a big ad campaign about naloxone. It's a medication that reverses an opioid overdose, and it says, you know, saving a life can be this easy. Can you take me through Mm -hmm. how that campaign kind of impacted communities and the efforts to distribute naloxone? That's more on the the end side of things as opposed to the prevention side of things. But kind of going from there, I know that naloxone is a big component right now when it comes to harm reduction, Mm -hmm. the, the more worrisome effects at the end. The campaign was really designed by our our health commissioner, Dr. Farley. He really felt strongly that that because it was a nasal spray and because it is relatively easy to use, that if you could just demonstrate it to people through the ads, um, that they would basically kind of understand it, understand the importance. I think the hard thing about advertising is that you know, you really have such a small window. I think people who saw it, the results from a lot of the, um, like the surveys they did afterwards, I think showed that the people who saw it could pretty much understand how to use it, but also simultaneously also wanted more training. I think the advertisements added a lot of good exposure. Unfortunately, I feel like advertising is so useful, but also so expensive that it's often hard to justify spending crazy amounts of money on it, That which is money that could be going to buying Narcan, which is also really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really think that the ad did a good job of, of um, helping to get that message out there. I definitely got, um, you know, mixed feedback about it, for sure. I think some people liked it, some people didn't. Um, they're planning to do another... I think they're planning to do another wave in the next year or so. And they're going to do, um, I think, kind of like community focus groups to try to, you know, just improve the messaging and all that kind of stuff, which is really exciting. Um, I just think more and more, it's just important to be getting the word out. I think it's also, I've learned over and over again, it's important how you get that message out. Because I also think there's a lot of people in the city who, hear naloxone, hear Narcan, and think about a certain population of people, a certain population of drug users. I think we're learning more and more that, you know, no matter what you think you might be using in this city, it's really good to just have naloxone on hand, just in case. I think being able to kind of tailor that message in a certain way could be really beneficial. And with that, you know, the idea is we want to get more naloxone into people's hands, but you're talking about this ideation of a certain subset of people carry this around as opposed to this could be a general public initiative. I know that some of the common myths you've got with naloxone is it's something that encourages drug use or it's something that could be overdosed 
on. What, uh, you know, what does the data show actually about naloxone when it comes to those myths that are put out there by people or thoughts? Well, so I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know if there's a, a lot of data to support what I'm about to say, but, you know, I think I know definitely anecdotally, I've talked to enough people who use drugs to know that no one wants to be Narcan. It's not something anyone uses drugs with the intention of it happening afterwards. It's always like kind of laughable to suggest that someone is going to use a certain amount of drugs because they're like, oh, it's okay, I'll be narcan afterwards. Um, that's just not how people really think, um, at least in my experience. In terms of people believing you can like gain a tolerance to it or overdose on it, I mean, that's really not a thing. The more you give someone, you know, unfortunately, the worse the withdrawal symptoms are going to be afterwards, which is really why no one wants to be Narcan, right? It, it puts people into the state that they spend sometimes years in addiction trying to avoid, right? It doesn't always make a, a lot of sense. Sometimes you'll see things like Narcan-resistant fentanyl and other kinds of myths out there about things, which really isn't a thing at all. You know, the thing about naloxone is really about dosage and time. It's really making sure you find someone in enough time to actually give it to them. Because the thing about it is, you, you know, eight minutes without breathing, you know, that's a wrap pretty much. And fentanyl, it just, you know, especially when you inject it, it just works so quickly. It can take effect in about a minute, less than sometimes. It's just really, really important to, to be dispelling some of these myths. And not everyone's going to believe you, unfortunately. That's just how these things go. If you talk to, you know, again, coming from right from the horse's mouth, if you actually talk to people who use drugs, you know, they take it very seriously. And, you know, they, for the most part, you know, don't generally want to die. And they're out there making sure each other stays alive. I've really made it my mission in this world to ensure that the majority of our Narcan is going right into the hands of people who use drugs because they are really the ones who are ensuring that each other survive in the long run. Yeah, it's a very good community initiative and it's hitting the people who need it the most, especially with it. One other thing that I remember hearing about too, when I was back in Oregon and this stuff was going on, we were starting to put naloxone in the hands of first responders and other initiatives. One idea was putting blue lights into public facilities so people would be discouraged from using drugs. Is that uh, an available situation? Do you see that in Philadelphia or what is the data kind of showing about that initiative too? Um, so the city definitely tried the blue lights initially as a, as a pilot. The neighbors, especially in Kensington, were frequently upset about people injecting on their porches and things like that. You know, at the time, the city was trying to manage a very substantial crisis, still is, right? They were really just trying everything they can. At this point, I, it seems like we're really focusing more on more traditional forms of harm reduction and really trying to um, improve the ways people get into treatment. I don't think, I don't think they still hand the blue lights out anymore, to be honest. But I mean, people could always get them, sure, if, if, if they're if they're interested. I don't know. I, I I don't have any data to support what kind of actual deterrent it is. So you know, I'm not really sure. To that point about the neighbor situation, too. One of the first things I talked with you about while at the APHA meeting was this idea of um, nim nimbyism, which is not in my backyard. And you've mm -hmm. got these uh, studies and polls that we do with folks. We're saying, you know, we're really excited about these things. We'd rather see people you know, receive community-based treatment or have syringe service programs around. But then when that idea is presented, uh, the folks who own property nearby where these initiatives could be set up get very frustrated by it and concerned about it. 
And this is kind of a broader question, but what can we do as public health professionals and as community members to kind of combat this stigma associated with that? Yeah, I mean, I really think that it just takes a lot of education. And to be honest, sometimes even that isn't enough. I Unfortunately, I wish I could sit here and say that it's always lack of education that leads people to have those kinds of beliefs. But sometimes people really just do hate people who use drugs. You know, they really see their lives as meaningless and, you know, say things like, oh, it's natural selection. You know, people say some really terrible, terrible things. I've even heard it from health professionals, you know, um, or first responders. It's, it's always just really, I always think it's really, really important just to be to try to ha- be have as uh, an educational experience with some of those people as possible to really try to not only validate their concerns because obviously if you're living in Kensington you have concerns right there's needles everywhere there's people everywhere people are injecting there you know it it things are not ideal by any means so i always think it's really important to be validating those experiences but also to be really trying to educate people on why all of this is happening, right? Like this is all happening in that neighborhood because this neighborhood has been historically ignored for a long time, right? Um, there are no, there historically have not been services in that neighborhood for people. You know, there, you know, we have a housing crisis in this city. You know, there's, there are a number of reasons for why things have ended up the way they have. And then when we're talking about certain interventions that might be deemed as enabling, you know, and again, it's it's all about education and it's about really trying to get people to understand this harm reduction approach and understand that while it is definitely not ideal for people to be chaotically using certain kinds of drugs, right? The fact of the matter is certain people are going to do that. And are there ways that we can keep those people alive? I definitely know many people who have been Narcan several times, you know, in the course of their addiction, you know, who at this point are, you know, doing well, you know, working, raising their family, you know, and this idea that, you know, once upon a time that their life didn't have value. You know, I just can't believe that, you know, and it, it's really getting people to think about this idea that people can change, right? Like people can start to make different decisions in their life if that's what they want. Um, but you have to be alive for that to happen. And uh, I think, unfortunately, people haven't always had these experiences in their own life. And I think sometimes that makes it hard. I think also it's the opposite where people have had these experiences in their lives. They have family members who have made their lives very hard, have robbed them, have, you know, uh, you know, all of the things that come with having a person in addiction in your family or in your friend group, you know, it can be difficult. And I think sometimes people tend to generalize those experiences to all people who use drugs, which is just not fair. So it's really, and you know, similar to harm reduction. It's about meeting those people, those NIMBY people where they're at, you know, really trying to get a, get a sense of where they're coming from, from their perspective, because they, it can be different. People can um, definitely have different perspectives, harmful and not, uh, about about these types of subjects and really trying to explain to them why some of these things are so important. And, you know, I really, I, I mean, I really try to, you know, kind of combat stigma everywhere I can. And a lot of that, you know, really starts with myself, too. I try to be open and honest about my history with drug use and really try to make sure people understand like yeah i haven't been impacted 
I haven't been impacted by the war on drugs because I'm also like a suburban white girl, you know, like these are realities, right? Um, and and these are, are important things to acknowledge because other people have not had the same experiences I've had. And that is because of things like racism, classism, and all of these things that, that impact what we're seeing today. I always, I always just say validation and education and it's, um, it, it's just super important to try to move people along the continuum. You know, am I going to get everyone to accept safe consumption spaces? No, but maybe I'll get you on needle exchange or, or something else. Um, it's just about trying to, to move that, uh, move that bar kind of however you can. Yeah, I think you've touched on a lot of really good points there. I, I really appreciate the idea of, you know, you have to be alive, you know, to be able to mm-hmm. improve and make these, uh, you know, decisions yourself and with a community that's supportive of that. And if you don't have those key entities in place for you to do something like that, or those services that you're talking about, then it is significantly harder and it kind of contributes to this cycle that we're seeing of how we think of folks or how we, you know, disparage folks and how we continue to perpetrate stigma in the community with it. One thing I want to touch on too, you know, you've given me all of this insight into, you know, kind of your personal journey throughout all of this, how this has all come together. And I know I imagine along the way too, you were surprised about what you found. Can you comment kind of on one thing that you thought you knew, but then you were later wrong about in this journey? (laughs) You know, um, I was really trying to think about this and I, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot I've been wrong about. I feel very lucky that I have such great harm reduction advocates, people who use drugs in my life, who who do consistently check me on things. You know, I think the big message that we use today is, you know, never use alone. But that messaging in and of itself is just, it's, it's just kind of confusing because people who use drugs are going to use alone. You know, people who use drugs are stigmatized and are using a drug where they go into withdrawal after about an hour. You can't be with somebody 24 hours a day. You know, it's, it's just not realistic. So I've had to, you know, I've had a lot of really hard conversations with my colleagues and people in my life about, okay, well, then what's the messaging and how, how do we keep people safe in those scenarios? What contingency plans? do we come up with? And, and that's just one example. It's like, I, I've been, I've been checked on a lot of things. Um, I used to think that Narcan was the end all be all, but there is a really great cheap intramuscular version that could be more distributed, more widespread. There's an endless list of, of things I've been wrong about. And I, I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, because I think ultimately it's, it's, it's important that that I've maintained these relationships where people feel comfortable enough to tell me when I'm wrong. And I'm, re- I'm really grateful for it because it, it only makes me better at my job. I would agree. I think that's one of the most wonderful things. It can be frustrating sometimes though, too, being on the receiving end of criticism, regardless of it's warranted. Oh, yeah. or warranted. Um, you know, it keeps, yeah. keeps you real, keeps you down to earth. But the, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I can count many, many times where it's improved my life and how I think about my interactions with the world and, you know, what I aspire to do. I think that's a really uh, good point to touch on. And I think that yeah. your, your work and what you do, you know, em- empowers that as well, too, for other people. It's one of those positions where you come from a, a humble background and you kind of figure out what works and what doesn't. And it's kind of a process along the way that helps you relate and meet yeah. people where they are with it all. I appreciate that insight. Um, I appreciate you coming to talk with us today. That's our show for now. Thank you for joining me.
Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by Steve Sonier. Our team can be reached by email at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. Thank you.